Well, good morning, everyone, once again, and I invite you to turn to your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And we are on the home stretch. I look to be finishing this before Christmas. This is a very, very deep passage of Scripture. And my job as a teacher, pastor, is for everyone to get it, regardless of where you are in your journey in Christ. The hard thing about being a pastor is that some people have been saved maybe for a few weeks, for a few years, some have been saved for decades, and some are at different levels with their knowledge of who God is, with their knowledge um, of who they are in Christ. And this is really interesting because this passage which I'm about to start preaching from and starting in verse 14 going through to the end of the chapter is one that pastors, preachers, scholars, theologians, commentators, whoever they are that have studied the Bible, disagree on. Even the, my Bible has a title that I disagree with. And I've actually come to a decision where I actually am 100% convinced Very rarely am I 100% convinced that I know or that I believe what Paul is trying to say to his audience when he reads these verses. And I strongly recommend that you have a Bible with you. If you don't have one with you, then there's plenty at the back. But of course, I'll have the verses on the PowerPoint as usual. But these verses, more than likely in your version are ones where you read it and you think, my goodness, what in the world does that mean? And it's very healthy to compare your version as I use a version that is as uh, simple English as, as I can get it without taking away the meaning of that verse. And so we're only going to get through a few verses this morning. Um, But it comes down to pretty much the question, and this is the title of my message, Testimony or Lamentations? Testimony or Lamentations? And Lamentations, I'm not talking about the Old Testament book. I'm talking about the noun that we used, the use for someone lamenting. Lamenting someone who is sorrowful, someone who is expressing sorrow and pain and distress. Lamenting. And so this is pretty much the two sides, the two ends of the debate. Is this Paul writing right now as a testimony of what his life was like, of what he was experiencing, or is it an expression of his lamenting in that he is going through this struggle of what you write about or you read about Um, as he is writing this letter. In other words, he's an apostle. He 
is probably the most mature Christian that's ever been on the face of this earth. And you have to wonder, what is he trying to get the audience to realize? As usual, my job, I feel compelled to present both sides. However, as I said, two weeks ago, I hadn't made up my mind yet. But I'm convinced. I'm convinced. However, if we disagree on this, remember it's okay. It's okay. We can still have unity. We can still talk about it. But I'm just trying to initiate the conversation. Because we should be talking about this kind of stuff. We don't, don't necessarily get to do it on a Sunday morning. But this is where small groups come into play. Meeting up during the week and say, hey, what do you think about that? And I'll put it out one more time. And I'm going to continue to put it out. If you ever have a question that you're wondering, that you'd like my input, it's, I'm only an email away. I am only an email away. And so I'm, I'm, I'm quite I'm surprised. I'm, been quite, I'm not sure how to feel about it. Either because I have not received one email or one question. Um, from Sorry, I have. I have. I have. I'm lying. I've only had one discussion, let's just say. Oh, no, that's lying as well. Very little, very little conversations have I had about this whole book of Romans. And to me, that's very surprising. Either I'm doing a good job at teaching it, or um, people just have no idea and they're just forgetting about it. Or they're just doing it with other people. It's, 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 it's just, that's, that's what's going through my mind right now. So I'll put it on the table. If you ever want to email me, and you want to have a discussion about something, I'm, I'm, I'll do my best to make the time to make sure to all that happen. But the easiest way is through email. We're going back to the context of Romans 7. Is Paul talking about when he was lost or saved? This is the debate. Is this passage about when he was lost before he became a Christian or when he was saved? That's the question we're answering. And I refer you back to verse 1. Verse 1 is very important. I don't know why preachers don't pick on this more. Brackets, for I speak to those who know the law. I am speaking now to those who know the law. Who knows the law? The Jews. The Jews knew the law inside out, off the top of their heads, some to the point where they had it stuck to their head. So, the question I raise again, has Paul stopped talking to those who know the law? That's a question that you use your, your reasoning you use your brain, answer that question. Has Paul stopped talking to those who know the law? I don't believe he has. He has given no indication. I put this on the screen because this is very important. Jews versus unbelievers. When you read this passage, which we're about to go through verse by verse, a strong argument that says that... that sides with people who say um, Paul is talking about when he was saved. This is his struggle with sin. Um, you will always hear an unbeliever does not match these qualities. An unbeliever does not match these qualities and we'll get into this more. But a Jew does. And so this is why I said Jew versus unbelievers. When you read this passage... I'm convinced that the audience is the Jews, those who know the law. 
and it makes more sense if you have those people in your mind. Nowadays, you could relate that to religionists. To me, a Jew is just another kind of religionist. We have religionists in every single denomination, including Protestants. Lots in Catholics, tons in, Muslim, in, in, um, in Islam, tons, um, you'd be surprised, in, um, in Hinduism, okay? I call them religionists, those who are still under the law, those who are still trying to please God through their behavior. And now we get into verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. And I underline spiritual there to make sure you understand what that means. What do you think spiritual means? It's from God. What's his argument again? Why is he talking like this? What question is he trying to answer? I refer you back to verse 7, if you're not familiar with this passage. What then is the law sin? His conclusion is no. The law is spiritual. The law is divine. The law is from God. How can you call it sinful? But it's interesting. Notice the contrast that he uses. But I am carnal, sold under sin. Now that right there confuses me. Because when I just read chapter 6, and I studied chapter 6, that language is, seems hypocritical. Now obviously, that language can be argued in a different way, because why would there be a debate? There wouldn't be a debate. So, Paul here is apparently confessing that he has a problem. He has a problem with living by the flesh. Not living in the flesh, but living by the flesh. What problem did he have? Well, he brought up coveting. Maybe that was it. But it's just interesting the language that he uses. Sold under sin. Didn't we just study that we have been made free from sin? Why is Paul using a phrase like that where we are still sold under sin? We're still under bondage with sin, some versions will say. I'm just going to put it out there. If Paul had this problem, I believe he would have used it a different way. Less language. So let's see why I believe he's using. First of all, look at all the contrast too. Spiritual, carnal. The law is spiritual, but he's calling himself carnal. Does that make sense with what he's just written in chapter 6? To me, the dots don't add up. To me, he's being hypocritical if he's still saying that his 
an apostle, one that says, hey guys, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. The counter-argument would be, no, this is a sign of maturity. This is a sign of maturity because Paul is mourning over his sin. And we know no one can agree, uh, no one, sorry, can disagree that Paul is, is um, discounting his eternal, eternal um, freedom from sin. But to me, I'm um, sorry, but to... But, but he's, he's still saying, maybe, that he still feels like he is under bondage. He still feels when there's times when he's just fleshly and sold under sin. I can't get away from it. Also notice the tense. The tense changes. And this is really confusing. This is probably the biggest argument that those who say this Paul talking about himself as a Christian is because he changes the tense from going from past to present. Now he's saying, I am carnal, which is quite a good argument. And I do wonder about it myself. But then I think, does the present tense mean Paul is talking about himself at the time? Do we ever use present tense to talk about the past? Just have a think about that question. Straight away you might say, no, why would we do that? But let me humor, humor you for a second. A guy walks into a bar and gets knocked out. What happened to him? You know that one, right? I just use present tense. A guy walks into a bar. Did that happen in the past? Yes, because he gets knocked out. What happened to him? Just deductive reasoning. We know it happened in the past. Let me get to a more complicated one. A guy walks into a phone booth. He was a fisherman. He rang up his wife and said, Honey, I have the best news. I caught a fish this big. He fell down and died. Why did he die? If you know the answer to that question, I'd love to have a talk to you after the service. Not now. <laughs> Why did he die? I just spoke present tense. But it happened in the past. That's just to get you thinking. Now you might say, Tim, that's very immature. They're just jokes. Okay. That's what I was just saying. Do we use present tense? I, I think we can. We don't do it often. But here's for something more serious to think about. I'll say more, more of a maybe convincing argument. Why might Paul change his tense if still talking about his past? Because that's really the question that we're asking. Why does he change his tense? 
Could it be, I'm just, just proposing, could it be that talking in present tense would have more effect on the person, on the Jew, reading it, where he could feel or relate better to what Paul is trying to say? Could it help the Jew relate better to it just by it being in a present tense? Just putting it out there. But I don't think the tense is really a good enough argument to say that this is him being in the present. Only because there are some interesting verses that Paul writes. And we'll get into that soon. But first of all, he says, I don't understand my own behavior. Does that sound like an apostle of Paul? Does that sound like someone who knows it's all here to do with the mind? Do you want to beat this? Then he says later on in his book, well, don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You want to walk by the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He knows the solution. But he doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. To me, this brings me more confusion on someone who has just written six chapters where I'm pretty sure he knows who he is. I'm pretty sure he knows why he breaks the law. But as a Jew... Does he know? Or, I better use my tense correctly. As a Jew, did he know? Did he know? Because obviously he's saying, I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. And this is a verse where someone will use, hey, but an unbeliever, an unbeliever, do they actually want to do the right thing? An unbeliever, do they actually hate the stuff when they do something wrong? Do they actually have conviction over it? No. And so I bring you back to that previous the, the slide that says Jew versus unbeliever. A Jew, on the other hand, does want to do the right thing. A Jew does want to please God. A Jew actually hates it, I believe, when he displeases God. He's a chosen person of God. And he's been brought up to believe that this God is not just the creator of the universe, but that they are his chosen people. They are the people that God has made available his plan of redemption to the whole world. It came through the Jews. It started off with the Jews. It's no longer available just to the Jews. Praise God, it's available to us. Gentiles, everyone else, it's available to everyone. They do want to please God. They do hate it when they break the law. But I, I reckon they don't understand it. They don't understand it. Law, God, you've given us this law, these laws. I want to fulfill every single one, but I just can't. And it comes down to that 
that ex example that we went through last week, coveting. Coveting's the big one. Coveting's one that comes for the heart. It's not actually an action. It's a heart sin. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. This is another verse that convinces me that Paul is still addressing that question in, chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 7. Paul, what? If you're saying that we're no longer under the law, then isn't the law sin? And we've just gone through last week that no, the law is not sin. I don't, I don't disobey the law because the law is sinful. I disobey the law because sin, the power of sin, works through the law to get me to sin. To me, he's answering this question again. This shows that I agree that the law is good because I know what I am doing is wrong. I actually know when I am displeasing God. I actually know when I am sinning because there is a law that tells me that I'm sinning. I agree that the law is good. I'm agreeing that the law is holy. Or what's the word he just said? Spiritual. This is just another answer for verse 7 on the objection that the law is sinful. I agree that the law is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me. And this is where I'm finishing off today. Because it's just a... This is where I believe our exegesis goes out the window. Because it's very interesting. First of all, it is no longer I who do it. This is probably number one objection. Number one objection. Because uh, notice also, which we're getting to next week, verse 20. If you compare verse 17 with verse 20, it's virtually the same thing. It's virtually repeated, just in a different way. It's no longer I who do it, which confuses a lot of people who say, no, this has to be Paul when he was saved. But to me, that's not really a strong argument because even if Paul was saved, he's saying no longer I that do it. Excuse me. When we're saved, it's still us sinning. It is still us sinning. We're choosing to sin. We can't say it's no longer I. It's sin working in me. You can't, you can't use that excuse. So what is he saying? It's no longer I who do it. We'll get into more this week, but when you have a passion, a will, a strong desire to obey every single law that God has put down on, this, on the face of this earth. If you have that desire and you, you can't live up to it, you can't do it, you can't pass, well, it's beyond me, he's saying. This is beyond 
my capability. I'm putting my whole will into this. And sin ends up winning. And I just underline sin living in me because this is, I can't compute with this. I can't, this does not compute with me. Sin living in me. The Greek word akeo, living. Your version might say dwells. It means to reside, to occupy a house, to dwell in, to cohabit. Wait, I thought we have been made new. I thought we had been our old self crucified, dead. But I've got sin living in me? I don't think God can cohabit and reside in the same place as sin. Remember, Jesus says himself, a house divided cannot stand. By one offering, Hebrews 10.14, we have been made perfect. If we have been made perfect, how does sin still live in us? If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I do not believe one ounce of sin lives in you. Not one ounce of sin is in you. You are perfect. Inside out. And that's why those who say the flesh is still you, it, does, it can't. It can't be. It has to be an old pattern or an old way of thinking. And when we get into Romans 12, he says the answer is, renew your mind. Your mind has not been made new. You have to renew it. And notice how the mind controls absolutely everything. If I do this, it has to go through my mind. If I do that, it has to go through my mind. It all comes back to here. It's still perfect, though. And that might confuse a lot of you. In our eyes, it's not perfect. In God's eyes, it is. How can he declare you righteous if you still have sin in you, dwelling in you? It is an impossibility. And so the analogy that people use is this. It's like, yes, your old self has been crucified because no one can deny chapter 6. Your old self is dead. But doesn't mean you leave. It leaves you. So they use the analogy of you're carrying continually your dead corpse. Your dead old self you are carrying everywhere that you go. And it's very hard, it's very hard to ignore him, even though he's dead. Last time I checked, dead people don't have any power. It's a corpse. Why is it still telling me what to do? Second Corinthians 5.17, I'll repeat it again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. They've passed away. Now, have they passed away in the sense that they have just completely, your memory has been wiped? Of course not. 
but the power of your old self has passed away. You are now a new creation with God's spirit living in you. God's the one orchestrating stuff. God's the one that's working in you. God is the one putting the desires in your heart. It's God. It's not us. It's God. But now it is us because we can say we're one with God. It's God and us. So I can say, it's me now. Sorry if that confuses you. But it's like one and the same. All things have become new. So here's your homework if you choose to accept it. Okay? Here's your homework in the coming weeks. And you don't have to do this, of course. But it's a, I think it's a healthy exercise. Go and listen to someone. And I highly recommend John MacArthur. Go and listen to a message on John MacArthur, either done in 1983 or 2006. Don't do the latest one because he just goes on a rant and doesn't actually address the text. Go and listen. Here's one that gives you a really good argument of why this is Paul writing when he was saved, when he was an apostle, while he was in the prime of his life. And everything that he says, ask yourself, could that be a Jew? Could that be a person that is trying their absolute darnest to obey every single rule, every single law that God has placed in the book? That's the homework. And if you still come out at the end of it, and you convinced that, nah, it's talking about Paul being salvation, uh, Paul being saved. Why is this important? Why is this important? Maybe we'll get into that in the coming weeks because I've got to finish. But think about that question. Why is it important to know that this is Paul when he was a Jew? I think it's extremely important. It helps us a lot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's just amazing how you've chosen a way to reveal yourself through a human being. I confess now that I know there would be no better way than to do it. But even more amazing, Father, is just how relevant something written 2,000 years ago is still applicable today. Father, I, it cements our identity, our understanding of who we are in Christ and we know we need this, particularly when our enemy decides to seek us out and accuse us. Accuse us and cause us to doubt, cause us to fear, cause us to take the focus of you. 
Father, we just want to thank you for your love. Thank you for your just absolute, infinite wisdom in speaking through Paul and getting him to write down these words. And Lord, whether we agree with Paul's purpose in this passage, we're thankful that it all comes back to one thing, and that is victory being found through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the victory. We thank you that we can be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices to find our own way. Father, we rejoice in the truth that you are leading us every step of the way until we reach our home in the heavenly places. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.